Welcome to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. In this program, we take a fresh look at some of today's challenges from the economy, education, politics, security, defense, and much more. You'll be prompted to see and think about things just a bit differently. Now, here are your hosts, Ambassador Harry Thomas and Chief Alex Morales. Welcome to The Spotlight. We are your hosts, Ambassador Retired Harry Thomas Jr. And I am the Chief Alex Morales, retired as well. Harry, who do we have today, sir? We have my good friend, Ken Cooper, a renowned journalist, a Pulitzer Prize winner who's worked around the world in India, uh, South Asia, as well as in Boston area, and who is lucky enough to be married to a beautiful and talented artist, which is the only reason we're talking to him today. <laughs> Ken, thank you for taking the time in the spotlight. Alex and Harry, thank you for inviting me on. Happy to be here. So let's get started right away, Ken. Please tell us about your childhood in Denver. Sure, Harry and Alex. Um, I grew up in Denver um, in retrospect, what I'd call a lower middle class family. Both my parents were postal workers. I was raised on post office money. Um, both of my parents are children of the Depression, and their idea was a good job of a good job was a secure job, uh, job security, which meant a government job. And for the generation working at the post office was a good job for black people who faced discrimination in the private private workforce that, you know, has abated some but still exists. Um, we owned our own home, or as I like to say, we owned a mortgage. My parents did. <laughs> um, and uh, the neighborhood I grew up in was a neighborhood of brick bungalow homes with front and backyards, kind of spacious yards. Um, by the time I came of age, the neighborhood flipped from white to black. I think my parents were the first black family on the block. Before I came to this earth um, and uh, started my education in what were de facto public schools. That's not me saying that. That's the Supreme Court decision uh, in Keys versus School District Number One, I think handed down in 1973. Um, and, but I had a break in the seventh grade when I was in an awful junior high school. There was a private school that was looking to integrate it. They'd already started to integrate. And they went to the Urban League and asked for uh, junior high school where I was attending for the names of some academically talented black students. And my name was one of them. So I won a scholarship to Grayland Country Day School and graduated in the ninth grade, when, which is when it ended then as one of the first black graduates of that school and left there and went to Phillips Academy in Andover, Massachusetts for the first half of high school and, and came back to Denver and graduated from the only predominantly black high school in the state back then called Manual High School. So that's sort of what my growing up was like. I was the third of five, two older brothers and Two younger sisters right in the middle. <laughs> Learn how to be a diplomat, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Ken, 
how did your family migrate to Denver? Why Denver? Just out of curiosity. It's a good question. I mean, you know, Denver's black population for some decades has been around 10, 11, 12%, but, you know, sort of a hidden unknown population, even though we're on our second black mayor there. Uh, both my parents grew up in, I want to say towns, but I'll give them credit. They grew up in small cities in Kansas. Uh, my father coming from the smaller of the two, and he was drafted, uh, served during the Korean War and worked on a radar unit in Germany. Oh, and, thank you for your service. Yeah. <laughs> And when he got back, he couldn't find a job in his small hometown. And my mother had an aunt and uncle who lived in Colorado, and they wound up in Denver, where my father found a job at the post office. And actually, for Wally, this is an untold story about African-American fathers. I mean, for a few years, he actually worked two full-time jobs at the, oh, wow. clerk, at the clerk at the post office and a clerk with a state government agency try to support his five children. He stopped doing that only because his body couldn't sustain 16 hours a day over the long. Impressive. Well, again, happy birthday to your father, 97th birthday. He's a role model for, for all of us. And as you said, a little, little known story about so many of our fathers is I remember my father working at the post office and then working another job. Uh, that was the way it was, and it wasn't unique. Uh, but you went to Washington University, the Harvard of the, of the Midwest, as it's known. Why watch you? <laughs> I'm laughing. At, I'm going to tell you why I'm laughing about that Harvard of the Midwest. And by the way, I hope. Pressure of you to say my father is 97. He's only 92 so far. I think yeah. your good words suggest he's going to make it to 97. <laughs> <laughs> good Lord willing. Good Lord willing. Yeah. Um, well, I had this idea when I was in high school, uh, reading the job market, that uh, working with computers was a good thing to do if you wanted to get a good job. And I looked around at schools that had good engineering programs. This is sort of in the early days of computer science as an academic discipline. And I wound up at WashU. Some people find this a little surprising when I mentioned it. After turning down Stanford. Um, oh, wow. I went to WashU. Their, their scholarship office was different. In one respect, it didn't require me to do work study. I didn't want to have to work. Um, but I had been at Andover, Phillips Academy, and I kind of didn't like the tradition brown, you know, Andover students do this kind of orientation. And back then, and Harry, you know this, I mean, if you apply to college, you right off to the college and they send you a catalog and that's about all the information you get. And in Stanford's materials, it said it was the Harvard of the West. <laughs> and my experience in Andover had turned me off from the Ivy League schools. I had no interest, so I thought that's a strike against Stanford. Um, Washington University being in St. Louis, close enough for me to drive back and forth from Denver. I had some relatives 
I knew pretty well who lived in the suburbs of St. Louis. And they had a computer science program. And so I decided to go to Wash U. And when you know, my very first weekend there, I ambled into the, the bookstore in the campus center. And what do I see? I see a bunch of uh, uh, pennants and uh, car decals that said, Wash U, Harvard of the Midwest. <laughs> Although, you know, academically, you can argue that, but traditionally, the traditions at WashU were very different. Um, when Harry and I were going to college, you know, there was an idea of a Harvard man does thus and so and behaves this way, and a Yale man behaves this way. And WashU, being founded just before the Civil War, didn't have those kind of traditions, and people were much, much more individualistic allowed to do their own thing, which I appreciate it. Uh, and, you know, starting out in computer science um, didn't last very long for a couple of reasons. Uh, and I, there were sort of two things that came together. Uh, I actually stayed in engineering school for about a semester. Uh, the first was, you know, my first time with academic failure. I was well prepared for college, except in one area, which was science, which I kind of avoided. And the engineering program required freshmen to take physics. Oh, wow. Okay. And I should have had a clue in the very first lecture when the professor said, I, I said I'm going to review what you learned in high school. And within five minutes, I had no idea what the hell he was talking about. <laughs> but I'm used to academic success, so. I figured, you know, I, I can get this, um, but there was a problem. Um, I was taking calculus at the same time and doing Oof. quite well, quite well. I was well prepared in mathematics, but calculus would appear in the physics course before it would appear in the math course. So like, you know, I'd take a physics test and, two or th and, do not, and not do well. And two or three weeks later, they teach us the calculus that was in the physics course. And I said, oh, that's what we were doing two or three weeks ago. Uh, if I had better academic advice, it would have been, you know, delay taking physics. So there was that, and it was quite a crushing blow that, you know, basically failed a course for the first time in my life. But I also didn't feel that sense of camaraderies with my engineering school colleagues. I don't want to be unkind. Um, word nerds didn't exist then, but, you know, things that turned them on didn't do the same thing for me. And I remember clearly one day we had an assignment to write a computer program, and this is in days of flowcharts and basic computer programming, and do it in 15 steps to do whatever. And, you know, with key punch cards and ancient technology, I ran my program, and it worked. But one of my classmates did the same thing in 14 steps, saving one step. And when he told our classmates, they were so ecstatic. And I'm looking around like, what's the big deal, you know? <laughs> uh, I, mean, I, I, mean, it was, I mean, they were really ecstatic. And so that Christmas when I came home, uh, I did some reflection. And I was going through some stuff I had in my room. And, it occurred to me that 
even when I was in elementary school, I had dreamed of riding boats. And, you know, I thought about that and remembered that. Um, and then I thought in practical terms, well, you don't really come from the kind of family that could support you in between book projects. So I asked myself a question. What's a writer who gets paid on a regular basis? and the answer was journalist and uh, I switched my major to English and set that as a career goal based on that that thinking that is funny what is the writer that gets paid (laughs) on a regular regular basis wow so you became a journalist right what are the challenges that you face when you enter the journalism? Well, you know, my first challenge, um, I mean, that was my basic rationale, but I added to that as I went along. Um, I became aware that the civil rights movement and its success owed something to the media coverage of the movement. Um, and I began to sense, well, I think somewhat idealistically, you know, if people know the truth and the real facts, they'll do the right thing. And the other thing that happened is these two young whippersnapper reporters at the Washington Post uh, brought down a president. (laughs) And all of a sudden, journalism was a popular career choice for college students in my day. So the first big hurdle was getting the first job. And I had the good fortune before college internships were a big thing to have spent an internship a semester working full-time for a Black-owned weekly newspaper in St. Louis called the St. Louis America. I worked there fall of fall semester of my junior year. And that happened kind of by serendipity. When I graduated, it just so happened that the one reporter that they had in addition to the editor was leaving to go to... Uh, take a job out near Boston, actually. And I had worked with her as an intern, and when she left, filled her job, and was off and running, at least in terms of my first job. And the first job, I tell young people today, first job is always the hardest one to get. And with each successive job, getting another job is easier. And when you're looking for that first job, just think to yourself, I'm only looking for one job. Surely there's got to be one job for me. Don't think about you know, all the competition and how you know, all of that. Just focus on finding one job. And that first job, which laid a foundation for my career, uh, didn't pay a lot. <laughs> I mean, this money, it, you know, money has changed in value, but I started making $110 a week. <laughs> and then I got a raise. To $120 a week. (laughs) Uh, But it laid the foundation. And I had a wonderful black editor who was old enough to be my grandfather, who I had a wonderful relationship with. And he taught me a lot. We worked very well together. And with the first job, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back.
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Join us every week for the Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. The Ambassador is host Harry Thomas, and the Chief is host Alex Morales. Together, they bring you different views on today's challenges, from politics to education, security, defense, and the economy. The Ambassador and the Chief, along with their guest experts, outline new perspectives and lively discussions. Tune in to the Spotlight on the Voice America Variety Channel. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. If you have a question or a comment about the program, drop us a line via email to support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Again, that's support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Now back to the spotlight. And we're back with the spotlight with Mr. Ken Cooper. Go ahead, Harry. Hey, Ken, you were telling us about your, your first boss who mentored you, uh, which was great. You said you also you know, took a job in journalism out of practicality because of writing. Uh, but who else inspired you in journalism or, or who else helped you? Good question. Um, I, I want to name that first editor, the late Benny G. Rogers, uh, with whom I had just a wonderful relationship. And he taught me an awful lot. Um, he was 63 and I was 21. So literally old enough to be my grandfather. You know, he was the kind of guy who, Talked a lot of trash and had a big bark, but he had a soft heart. Um, and he was very good at what he did, was doing. And he could have worked for white daily newspapers in St. Louis, but he kept his job as editor of the St. Louis American because he wanted to retain his independence. He could have made more money and had you know, more prestige. He stuck with it. I love um, that. Yeah. Um, you know, along the way, I've had any numbers of mentors, and I would also like to mention my mentor in college, Jack Kirkland, uh, who was, uh, when I was there, chairman of the Black Studies Program, now department. Uh, and believe it or not, in his 80s, is still teaching as a social work professor mm -hmm. part-time at my alma mater. But Jack sent, imbued me with a very clear understanding race and racism in America and the position of people of color, specifically black people in America, um, which fortified me you know, throughout my career. Uh, I was on a virtual program with him not long ago, and I told him, hey, Jack, I still hear you in the back of my head and things you said in Black Studies 201. Um, I had some colleagues who were helpful National that I got to know from the National Association of Black Journalists and their local chapters, 
name you may know, Harry George Curry, who was later editor of Emerge magazine. When I left the St. Louis American, I worked at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, where he was already a big dog reporter. He gave me advice when I was at the American and he was at Post-Dispatch. I tried my best to compete with him on a couple of stories, but you know, and I learned some things when you know he he bested me. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I think one thing about journalism, you know, you can grow by watching what your competitors do and figuring out what makes them successful. And I learned lots of little tricks from watching more senior journalists early in my career. Uh, I'd also mentioned, you know, I had some other editors who were very helpful to me in different stages of my career. There's a guy named Ron Gelbspan at the Boston Globe who came up with the idea for the series that won the Pulitzer. Uh, still friends with him. He pushed me to another level as a journalism journalist. I remember one day he was a little upset with me. I was fighting him on some edits. And he said to me something to the effect, look, you just can't say these are the facts. You got to think about what are the implications. And he pushed me in the direction of being more analytical in my coverage. Um, there was also an editor at the Washington Post named Bill Hamilton, my first editor there. Great guy, fantastic line editor, uh, who taught me a lot about how to write smooth stories. You know, I sent in my first stories and somehow he would rough move out the edges, make it flow and make it better. And from his edits, I learned how to write better just by figuring out what he'd done and why he'd done. Um, so those are a number of my mentors and people who had influence on me as I, I came up. and I, I learned awful lot from observing what my senior journalist, I was competing against, how they did things, little tricks of the trade that they had. Um, and uh, I appreciate and respect all of them for what they did for me. Well, thank you for that. Um, you are, I have two friends who are pure surprise winners. Uh, Ed Jones, who is, uh, the, who is a silent person and you are a loquacious person. <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, without the Ivy League, you wouldn't have that Pulitzer surprise. Remember that. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, you were awarded the, the prestigious Pulitzer surprise, and I've always been impressed by that, Ken, uh, at the Globe for your work examining race in Boston, which is a complex and never-ending uh, issue for those of us who live there. But tell our listeners about this reporting and what made you explore this topic. Sure. Um as I mentioned a minute ago, that my editor at the time this came up, I was covering the Boston Public Schools on the education team, which reported to an editor who was called the editor for the specialists. He had the environmental reporters, the education reporters, like that. And uh, he came up with this idea and sold it to the editors uh, to do us. This is in 1983. Just as Boston was kind of getting over the open hostility and violence, the, the violent reaction to court-ordered school desegregation. It wasn't quite over it, but things had settled down quite a bit. 
And Ross's idea, he used the exact right term, was to examine institutional racism in Boston and assemble a team of reporters to do that. Um, and he picked me to join the team and to write about basically affirmative action on college faculties in and around Boston, which is a big industry. Uh, and the irony here is that initially I tried to get out of the assignment. <laughs> um, first of all, I wasn't sure that the globe would allow us to tell the truth, the unvarnished, ugly truth. And the other thing was I had a turf battle going on with another a senior member of the education team. And I was afraid if I got removed from my routine duties, in the meantime, she would, you know, pull an imperialistic act and recapture some of my territory. But Ross took me out to lunch, and I'm making this excuse. I didn't say no, because that's insubordinate. I'm making this excuse, that excuse. And then finally, he looked to me straight in the eye, and he says, hey, I'm giving you Harvard and MIT on a platter. I could tell he really meant it. And I looked and said, okay, I'll do it. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, that told me then we were going to be allowed to tell the truth. And it was a team of seven reporters, well, actually six reporters and one editorial writer at the very end. Uh, it's 13 parts. Uh, first seven, if I get it right, six or seven. We sort of divided up the major sectors of the Boston area economy, called then high tech, higher education, we looked at labor unions and examined um, the presence of African-Americans in those industries. Alex, it was a conscious decision to make it black, white at the editor's level. Wow. The clarity and because the busting conflict, the school desegregation conflict had basically been a black, white context. The Globe later did a series about Hispanics in Boston separately. Uh, and that ran, say, in the spring. And then near the end of the year, actually it was just before Thanksgiving, I remember this too, editors brought several reporters into a room and said, hey, we want to, you know, do some more stories on this. We want to compare Boston to other cities. And it's almost Thanksgiving, it's almost Christmas time. And we start making the Excuses about what well, we got vacations coming up. Editor said, "Well, that can change." And all these sort of <laughs> that can change. All these, you know, reasons maybe we can't do this came up, and then finally, one of the editor in chief said, "Well, some people think we have a chance to win a prize." And the room got real quiet because in journalism, there are many awards, but there's only one prize. And that second six stories were reported, written, and published in about five weeks, uh, which is record time. I went to Philadelphia and Miami and compared elements of race and racism in those cities to Boston. And we concluded that, you know, Boston compared to those other cities looked pretty bad. And other cities were mentioned Philadelphia and Miami, Atlanta and Chicago, Houston and San Francisco. We started to take a look at your hometown, Harry, New York, but New York is so massive, it's hard to compare New York to anything. Any one of the boroughs could be a separate you know, city. 
Um, and uh, that was the last piece published in late December. And in April the next year, it was announced that we had won the Pulitzer Prize for what they called then special local reporting or investigative reporting. I was 28 years old. And for the next 30 years or so, I remained the youngest African-American to win a Pulitzer Prize, certainly in journalism. And I'm pretty sure in any category whatsoever. To a young African-American, I think in 2015, was involved in a Pulitzer at the Washington Post. He was 25 years old. So that's the story behind the Pulitzer. That's impressive. That is, uh, after you win that, that's a lot of, that's, that's a lot of pressure to maintain that quality. <laughs> But uh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I tried not to think of it that way. I mean, mind you, I'm 28. I'm still early in my career. And uh, I, I think I could... I'm proud that, you know, I actually did better work uh, later in my career as I grew as a journalist. But, you know, winning a Pulitzer is partly about timing and environment, you know. So, you know, and in fact, I remember one of my high school English teachers in Denver, and she called me up to congratulate me. The last thing, you know what she said to me? She said, don't let it go to your head. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let it go to your head, kid. <laughs> of course, of course. Which Tough was good love. advice. Which was Tough, good advice. Uh, well, Kent, it is our understanding that you became uh, a foreign correspondent for the Washington Post. So, what motivates you? You know, what motivated you to do that? I'm assuming it's challenges, or it was a career goal from early on. You know. Um, Going back as far as you know, when I worked for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, I think it's, it was my curiosity about the world, you know, and other countries. Um, and I had been working for, toward that goal for a while. It almost happened at the Boston Globe. I almost got sent to Japan. Um, but in the end, they sent somebody else who had a business background. In the early 80s, there was a lot of American interest in quality control and other manufacturing processes that were at Japan competing with cars and electronics and stuff like that. So it makes sense for them to send a business report. Um, and, you know, I was through a couple of jobs. Uh, I worked at the Globe and went to the Knight Ritter newspaper, the late great chain of newspapers called Knight Ritter uh, with a K. Uh, and they had foreign bureaus. I was hopeful of a posting with them, which didn't happen. Uh, and I left there and went to the post and uh, made some maneuvers to try to get on the foreign staff. One of which I came to understand that the foreign editor at that time wanted his correspondents to have covered a big beat. And one of those was Congress. After I covered education as a national education reporter for the Post, I covered Congress, specifically the U.S. House. And that finally, you know, 18 years into business, uh, got me the leverage to get a posting. 
And I met Harry when I was in India, and that was a wonderful thing. Okay. But That's when, the connection. Yeah. He was, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, ambassador. I used to call you ambassador back in India, didn't I? Didn't I? Didn't I? Yes, I predicted you did. I predicted you was going to become ambassador. <laughs> one thing journalists do, we're talent scouts. <laughs> uh, but actually, I really wanted to go to South Africa in the post-apartheid South Africa. Somebody else got that job, an African-American and so India, I said I wanted to go to South Africa or India. And so I got my second choice. And, you know, you don't get everything you want, but it was a wonderful experience working overseas. It taught me a lot about not just that region, uh, but about America and how we're viewed and what it means to be American and how our worldview is different. Um, it taught me some things about journalism how you report about another country. Um, and it was a rich experience. And I learned also something about myself that as a journalist, I did better and functioned better when I had more autonomy. And being in India, nine and a half or 10 and a half hours ahead of the office, they couldn't tell me what to do most of the time. <laughs> I had lots of autonomy and had a budget and had a staff and did my thing and people like Harry, you know, shared information with me at times, and their knowledge and insights. And uh, I used to say I could spend more time. What I used to do in India is more interesting than what I do as a journalist now. I could talk forever about working in India <laughs> as a foreign correspondent for those three years in the late 1990s. And as working in India, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Join us every week for the Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. The Ambassador is host Harry Thomas, and the Chief is host Alex Morales. Together, they bring you different views on today's challenges. From politics to education, security, defense, and the economy, the ambassador and the chief, along with their guest experts, outline new perspectives and lively discussions. Tune in to The Spotlight on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. You're listening to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. If you have a question or a comment about the program, drop us a line via email to support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Again, that's support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Now back to the Spotlight. And we're back with the Spotlight with Cam Cooper. Cam, you were talking about 
India and all your experience in India and how you became a foreign correspondent, but how has India changed since you departed? Well, there's a couple of things, and I, I have to admit, I've only been back to India once since I left in 1999. Um, I think the Delhi Metro has made a, their subway system has made a big difference in that town. Uh, I also understand that uh, you know, pollution was a really bad problem when Harry and I lived there. Yeah. And since our departure, I understand that um, some Indian scientists, and funny, I'd actually suggested this to my staff one day, had developed a cleaner burning two-stroke engine for the rickshaws, auto rickshaws, and things like that, which were a source of a lot of the pollution. Uh, so I understand pollution is abated. I don't think it's gone away. But the other big change, and this is something that Harry and I were absorbed in when we worked there, is the polit politics, you know, the current ruling party, the Bharatiya Janata Party, the BJP, was sort of an insurgent force that was, you know, edging toward running the country when Harry and I were there, but now they've sort of become the dominant political party. And uh, you know, I think it's fair to say that, you know, some of their philosophy, governing philosophy, and even their concept of what India is, is intolerant uh, in a nation that, you know, is very pluralistic in lots of different ways uh, and has a secular creed like the United States. The BJP is a, often called a Hindu nationalist party, and they think, you know, India at root is a Hindu nation, even though it has one of the largest Muslim populations in the world. Other religions are represented there, and there are 30 or 40 different major language groups. There's an ethnic divide between the North and South. You know, you just can't pack all of India into a Hindu identity. And that's created conflict. Um, you know, BJP had a reputation as a pro-business party, uh, whereas Congress had roots more of in a social democratic kind of uh, outlook. Uh, I think the two parties in that business orientation have come closer together. It was Congress that opened up the Indian economy uh, to outside investment slowly, probably not quickly enough. Um, And so those are the two big changes I see uh, in the politics and, you know, some lessening of pollution in the capital city of New Delhi. Well, Ken, you covered other parts of South Asia, most notably Afghanistan. Uh, our hearts go out today to the Marines who were killed and wounded, as well as the Afghans trying to escape. What are your thoughts about the current situation in Kabul and was the chaos at the airport avoidable? Well, I too, you know, want to say my condolences to the members of the families of the American Marines and also the Afghan citizens who were killed in that cowardly suicide bombing attack. It's most unfortunate that 
there hasn't been a more orderly withdrawal and evacuation. Um, there are different places you can place that blame domestically. Um, the Biden administration, I heard Secretary of State Anthony Blinken not long ago, faulting the Trump negotiation withdrawal agreement called it the peace deal. It really wasn't that. With the Taliban that was negotiated, signed in February of last year, the call for withdrawal starting in May 1 this year. Um, the big problem with that kind, Terry, you know this. The big problem with withdrawing in May, June, July, August is you're taking out American troops in the height of fighting season. Afghanistan is a, has a temperate climate. It snows there. And during winters and cold months, armies go dormant. But then fighting season starts in the spring when it warms up and runs through the summer. And I think it was a mistake by the U.S. government, blame Biden or Trump as you will, but certainly a mistake of the U.S. government to withdraw during the middle of fighting season. I also also have to question the accuracy or insightfulness of U.S. intelligence. They couldn't tell sooner than they did that the Taliban were rolling up the country. There was an article in the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago, maybe less than that, that left a strong impression on me and, and had the ring of truth as a journalist who had made seven trips to Afghanistan. And the story basically says that as soon as Trump signed that deal with the Taliban, the Taliban started buying off Afghan commanders and soldiers. And it has the ring of truth to me. When I was in and out of Afghanistan, I heard a saying about the country that went like this. In Afghanistan, nobody is for sale. But everybody is for rent, <laughs> meaning you can purchase somebody's loyalty temporarily until the next best cash offer comes around. And that Washington Post story said that the Taliban were offering rank and file soldiers $150 to switch sides. And the story said that the army hadn't been paid, soldiers hadn't been paid to six to nine months, which is making 150 bucks look real good. Somehow, it seems like American intelligence, and I don't know what in the reports, but they should have said sooner that, you know, that the army was collapsing based on this sort of corruption. Uh, the other thing I know about Afghanistan that has to do with the current situation, the previous elected government folded up so quickly. The reason Afghanistan has been at war of one sort or another for 40 years plus is because they don't do big pitch battles there. Nobody lines up masses of troops on one side and masses of troops on the other side and go at it. You know, what happens is they may start massing and they may sense that the other side has got more troops and more 
material and they withdraw so they can live the fight another day. And that's why they keep on fighting. Sometimes when I think of Afghanistan, I remember something that my mother used to say to me and my two older brothers. We shared a bedroom, and as brothers do when their kids would get into wrangles, and she would come to the door and, and basically say, hey, look, you better knock it out, because if not, I'm going to lock you in this room and let you fight it out <laughs> until the last man is standing. And they never fought it out in Afghanistan. That's why you have this constant warfare that, you know, is so hurtful to the people, the country's chances for development. I think it has fundamental problems as a nation state to begin with, being landlocked, being ethnically divided, not having that much in the way of natural resources. And this among men, this warrior culture, maleness is about, you know, fighting terms of warfare and dominating women. And so many attitudes I found in that country, and it's not every Afghan, but the predominant attitudes are stuck in other centuries. And for the United States to think that it could snap Afghanistan into the 21st century in 20 years, well, we're an idealistic country, but it'll take a lot more than that, uh, a lot longer than that. And Afghans got to work it out themselves. Well, that's a good point that you mentioned. It, it does this uh, then does this evoke memory of Vietnam? And why do you think American leaders have failed to learn the lesson of the past? That's a really good question. Probably a better question for a military man like you, Alex. <laughs> uh, um. You know, I remember, uh, maybe it's a lack of a sense of history. Um, now, you know, Harry and I were pretty young when Vietnam collapsed. Um, and I remember those images of the helicopters. I've heard stories told by senior journalists who were around for that. It seems like you would think in the military and or the State Department, there would be some institutional knowledge that we could convey. Um, we could have planned, had a longer planning horizon on the evacuation. We probably could have figured out, and this probably was the Taliban goal, that they achieved faster than they thought, that you know, the Americans were drawn August 31st, we're taking over September 1. Probably no later than October 6th, which is the day that, you know, we invaded the country in 2001. But they have a timeline. And um, we didn't sense, I don't think, um, the urgency with which the Taliban were operating and that they had a long game. Somebody told me the other day, a journalist, that wasn't Afghans, but some other subject people of the Soviet Union used to say, you know, the Russians own the watches, but we own the time. In other words, wait the Russians out. They'll get tired. Wait the Americans out. You know? That's pretty much what happened. Wow. Go ahead. 
Hey, Ken, tell us about your work at WGBH. Oh, happy to do that. Uh, WGBH uh, is what they call a dual licensee for public radio and TV. At this point, better known for public TV, Frontline, Nova, This Old House, Antiques Roadshow, etc. But about 10 or 11 years ago, they decided they had a radio station to play classical and jazz music. They decided to become an NPR station and news and serious talk radio. Uh, and I joined GBH um, after a very aggressive general manager recruited me uh, because of my extensive newspaper background. And uh, they called me a senior editor. Uh, I'm assignment editor and also part of the newsroom leadership team. Uh, I have reporters who work for me to cover education. They have long stints covering myself. Boston neighborhoods of color. And Alex, I have a very a young Latino. I'm very high on from Texas who covers sports and culture. Good, uh, very talented. Mature beyond his years, um, and I help shape our coverage. You know, often there's another black manager, but in some meetings I'm the only you know, African American, a person of color in the room have to sometimes point my colleagues in different directions or different concepts for stories bear on race and racism. And uh, in some ways I have more impact on the final product, radio newscast, than I ever did anywhere else I went because it's a relatively small organization. Maybe the St. Louis American I had. Half the news staff. Uh, I have a lot of impact on the overall safety yeah. coverage. Oh wow! Well, Ken, uh, thank you so much. We're about to head out the end of the segment. We have learned so much. We appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure. Harry, take us out. Hey, Ken, thank you so much, and you had the pleasure of working with my childhood neighbor and BFF, Howard Powell. Uh, which is such a small world, uh, but we really appreciate I hope our listeners um, will benefit from your knowledge, and I'm so still impressed by that Pulitzer Prize at age 28. Oh, no. Um, and the fact that you uh, have not lost yourself. You're honoring your parents and your mentor's legacy. Uh, so, namaste. Uh, namaste, G. And it's nice to be with the ambassador and the chief. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you. This was the spotlight with the ambassador and the chief. Thank you for tuning into the spotlight with the ambassador and the chief. Be sure to join Chief Alex Morales and Ambassador Harry Thomas again on the Voice America Variety Channel.